1: Hello, my name is Michael Johnston, and this is another episode of New Books in Sociology, a channel on New Books Network. Today I have Dr. Barbara Katz-Rothman with me. Uh, She is a professor of sociology at the City University of New York. Um, Welcome to the show, Barbara. Thank you, nice to be here. And today we'll be discussing the biomedical empire lessons learned from the COVID-19 pandemic, which was published by Stanford University Press in 2021. Uh, and uh, so let's go ahead and get started with what uh, what brought you to conducting research for this book and, and, and how did it develop? Yes.
0: Yeah, it's less about conducting research for it's the book is a kind of an overview of stuff I've been working on in some ways my whole life. Um, when I when I first proposed the idea of doing something on the biomedical empire, um, publishers were like, oh, that's too radical. Um, they, they couldn't hear it. I was going to do a book with Alan Peterson, a wonderful sociologist in Australia. It was a, a medical social textbook. We were going to update it. We, we said we were going to work at biomedical imperialism, and they had a little bit. Um, but COVID allowed people to hear what I've been saying all along. So here's the argument. That you can't be more of a social constructionist than I am, okay? Peter Conrad was on my dissertation committee, I was mentored and totally loved Irving Kenneth Zola. I worked with Ivan Ilyich. I mean, that's my world. Um, but one day I was chatting actually with Wendy Simons, and I think you interviewed her for the book Hospital And I was chatting with her while she was working on Hospital Land. And I was talking, you know, the social construction of illness or whatever. And I just got cranky. And I said, ah, the passivity of that gets on my nerves. It's not that social construction of, it's being constructed. And... I forgot I said that. Wendy quoted it. I was reading the book, and I was like, right, <laughs> that's a good point I made." <laughs> so I, I started thinking about it, and then I was at SSSP, um, Society for the Study of Social Problems some years back. David Smith was doing the Presidential Address, and he started talking about globalization, and he said... American sociologists seem to think there are borders (laughs) and that all sociologists seem to think there are borders and like, wake up. Um, It's time to stop using the nation state as our level of analysis. So I started thinking again in a much more specific way about biomedicine as a global power. And this may be the most awkward thing I've ever said, but essentially what I found myself thinking was Marx was right and Foucault was wrong. <laughs> which I can't believe I'm just saying it out loud and allowing it to be heard. But sure, government is the management committee for industry. But the state doesn't use biopower, biopower uses the state. Um, it, it, certainly, medical tourism, we see people being shipped around the planet. But research is going on around the planet that biomedicine goes where it needs to go. If it's easier to do the research on this group of underprotected people over here and sell it to that group of people, there, whatever, it's global. Um, So I, I, I found like we need to get past this national boundary discussion and start talking about it as a global power. So. Should I keep going? Talk to you what I mean by global biomedicalism is it an imperial
1: power? Yeah, so the, so the biomedical empire, you know, when I think of biomedical empire, I oftentimes think of this, uh, um, we once heard the military complex. Uh, is there a similar uh, a connection between the two? Of course. Every time in
0: sociology, I would raise, you know, in a medical sociology meeting or something, I would start talking about biomedical imperialism. You go, yeah, yeah, haha, biomedical industrial complex. Yes but more imperial powers. I just went looking, what what do people mean by empires? Whether you're talking about the Roman empire or the British empire, how, how is empire defined? Well, the economics. So there's absolutely no discussion. Medicine is a ginormous economic power. Um, It it, is not just the cost of drugs, but if, if, if something happened, Um, that, you know, whatever, I'm making this up. Don't try it. Eating a half a banana skin a day meant that nobody got any more cancers, heart disease, sickness was gone. You would still need some medicine because occasionally people fall down the stairs or get caught in a fire. But the economic crash that would result, if we stopped being sick would make every housing crisis crash look like nothing. Okay. It is one of the most enormous economic powers on the planet. So yes, it also has governmentality. You know how like of late you're hearing a lot about how trans people need medical authority to change their gender identification. Well, none of us have a gender identification without medical approval. If you give birth to a baby and you just want to announce that and document that, you need a doctor or a certified medical person to sign off on the fact that, yep, that's a baby, and they'll assign it a sex. And it's going to have the sex it assigns. We know with cases of anomalous gender, that was a decision they made. Um, you know, it wasn't necessarily totally obvious. So we are all citizens in that sense. It, it has the governmentality. If, okay, a sadder example, if... If you haven't heard from your grandpa in a couple of days and you go to the little house he lives in and he's not answering and you break down the door and you find his rotting body on the, on the bed, rotting, okay, rotting, do not invite the family over, say your prayers and dig a hole in the backyard. You'll be in more trouble than you ever heard of in your life. He's not dead till a doctor certifies him as dead. You need medical certification. You do not exist on this planet if medicine doesn't say you exist. So that is governmentality. Every excuse you ever wanted, every visa you ever needed, you needed a doctor to sign off on it. And this empires have some element of religiosity to them, some element of belief. If I had a nickel for every time I heard somebody say they believe in chemo, where the discussion about vaccines was entirely couched in terms of belief. It, 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 there is a religious element to our belief. And so that's an empire. That's not just a military industrial complex, like one more business. That's an imperial world power.
1: Excellent. And then I, I believe there is so governmentality. And then I re- believe, I think we're two of the elements of an empire. And was there a third element? That... Yes. Yeah,
0: the economics, the governmentality and the religion. Those are the three elements. And I see them all there in biomedical power. And, with every empire, sometimes, if I talk about an empire, people... Oh, I don't know, they feel like I'm trashing medicine. <laughs> it is not the case that empires don't do good. I mean those Romans built some amazing roads <laughs> and and the British Empire did end the process, the the right of throwing widows on funeral pyres. I'm actually in favor of that. <laughs> it was the use of imperial power, but I'll go for it. Empires are not necessarily sources of pure evil. They're not necessarily sources of pure good, but they have these elements of economic, governmental and religious power and they're global. And I think that defines medicine as we now know it.
1: And I think that it would be a a more of a process and a a structure rather than it is about um, caring or not caring. I think one of the uh, pieces of this book is uh, where you write about, there was some sort of a transition from, medical care to biomedicine. What's the difference between the, the yeah, two?
0: I, you know, this language is so, This I mean, not English too, but this language of how we talk about medical stuff. I've heard people say, oh yeah, she lost her job, so she doesn't have health care. And what they mean is doesn't have insurance or medical procedures. Okay. I, we use the word health care things that have zip-all to do with health or care. If you wanted to provide health, it would not involve so much medicine. It would involve diet, cheap, good food, clean air, clean water. I mean, you want to make people healthier. We know how to do that. It's not by having them see a doctor every six months. So the health and medical services are not the same. And I think we have to be aware of that and thoughtful about that. And the language of care. I, you know, this is one of the things that COVID made obvious. You had people who were dying, no question, they're dying, whatever they, you know, they were 97 years old before COVID happened, whatever, dying people were not allowed to see the people who loved them. No visitors, and I'm doing finger quotes with that one, no visitors were allowed in. The healthcare worker is the person who passes by on their shift and checkers, checks the numbers on one machine, and adjusts the drip on another. That's the healthcare worker. The visitor is the person who has loved and taken care of them their whole life. So within that setting, it's not about care; it's about a set of medically approved services. And the idea that someone you love is is dying your child, your spouse, your lover, your parent, whoever, is dying, and you need permission to be a visitor to see them. COVID allowed that institution to go back to what it did a long time ago. You know, they didn't used to let parents in to see hospitalized children. Because here's what happens. When a kid is in the hospital, and it's not allowed to see its parents, after a day or so, it just lies there and lets you do whatever you want. You want to cause pain, you want to Whatever, it just lies there, completely traumatized. A parent comes in and sees it. It's, mommy, ah! crying, screaming, daddy, don't leave me, hugging, grabbing. The parent walks out the door because visiting hours are over. And the kid is a complete screaming mess for until it, the trauma sets in and up again. So it goes basically comatose. So medicine said, okay, that we can't take care of those kids when the visitors are there. So they didn't let visitors in. Well, children had real patient advocates, parents, and so that got softened. Other people, some softening over the years of who's allowed with you and for how long. But COVID, it just went back to the base. You're the patient. You're the object we're working on. Anybody else in your life, anything else you care about is irrelevant. You're the object we are working on here and so all the care and social and human disappears
1: i see this as being an institutionalization of norms of policies of guidelines in the practice of biomedicine and uh, using that as a way to frame how things are uh, are expected to go in everyday practice of medicine um so i think a, a it would be good maybe to talk about what it means to be a, a good patient, a good customer, a good citizen, and maybe even looking at it to be looking at a, a, another area of what it means to go, to be a good medical practitioner.
0: Okay. Let me, let me, what does it mean to be a patient, let alone a good patient? Um, when I was working on, on the book, I, I just stopped for a minute. And I just opened a dictionary. and Let's look at the definition of patient. And so yeah, bear with me, be patient. And I'm just going to read you the definition. It's kind of funny. As an adjective, quote, able to accept or tolerate delays, problems, or suffering without becoming annoyed or anxious. As a noun, refers to a person receiving or registered to receive medical treatment. <laughs> Every conversation you've ever had with anyone receiving or registered to receive medical treatment ends up talking about delays, problems, suffering, annoyance, and anxiety. They're omnipresent. So being a good patient is learning to just shut up and deal. And basically not stand up for yourself, not advocate. You know, it's interesting. You think about early childhood socialization. You know how kids play doctor? Okay, because the deal is, nobody is allowed to touch you in inappropriate places, except the doctor. Nobody is allowed to see you naked, except the doctor. Nobody, I'm your parent, I would never allow anybody to cause you pain, except the doctor. (laughs) So kids play doctor. It's a way to break every rule you ever learned. So what we're saying is when you're a patient, you cease to be a full human being, and you know, um, Timothy Snyder, he, he did some work on some of these issues, and he talked about you, the patient is kind of a widget in a factory, that you're processed through the system. Um, yeah, but actually it's worse than that. You're not, you're not the, the unit they're processing. You're the battleground medicine is battling disease and battling illness and battling trauma and battling damage and battling all that stuff that happened on your body. So you are the battleground on which they do their procedures. And, you know, medicine actually is very militarized. You know, the, I don't know much you know about the history of this. We've all heard of Florence Nightingale, invented nursing on the battlefront because these busy docs had, didn't have time to waste on stuff like being kind to people or wrapping a wound they were doing the important stuff and medicine is still organized like the prussian army or something it, it is the most militarized can you give your students orders can you give the people who work for you orders no you you assignments things to do but you can't order them doctors give orders and military people give orders it it is a very militarized system and the patient is the battleground being worked on as you move through that system
1: and that's interesting that patient is used rather than person right because it is a depersonalized skill set that's applied on a on an object basically
0: exactly <laughs> You know, one of the places that's shown up kind of dramatically is the discussion of the fetal patient. Um, And in medicine, if you have a very high-risk fetus and you want to get it to a center that has the services that might be needed for that fetus or when it's born baby, they'll talk about moving the high-risk patient in You. The site you is in a location. That location, that site, is the woman's body. She doesn't even exist. It's the patient. The fetal patient from the body it's trapped in. They'll talk about accessing the fetal patient through the maternal barrier. Literally, I'm not making this up. The maternal barrier to access the fetal patient. Um, So, yeah, that language of patient is really troubling. (laughs) It, it, It does remove not only the the humanity of the patient but the humanity of anything else that might get in your way <laughs> like other people <laughs> like say the pregnant woman
1: <laughs> and it brings us back to the beginning of uh you know with Karl Marx it, it makes me think of how the you know the person is alienated from the practice from themselves and and even from their everyday interactions with with medicine because they are expected to be the good patient who allows another person to control them.
0: And, and, not, and this is where the almost religiosity piece of it comes from. It's not another person. It's medicine. If you disagree with your particular doctor, find another doctor. If you, if you have concerns about some medical procedure, look at the medical research on it. it that, that is not about a person. That is like the representative of the empire who you want to argue with over what to grow on your land in some colonized country. You're not arguing with that representative. You're trying to argue with the empire. And you have to work with that representative or try to find another one. But that's not where the power stops. The power goes to the top. And in medicine, it's that large economic worldwide system And one of the things I've seen is that when I start talking about this, I had a a Fulbright in Finland a while ago, pre-COVID. So it was there, you know, this distinguished chair in health science, Finland, whatever the hell, unpronounceable Finnish word, I can't say. Off I was. And when I would talk about some of these issues, people would say, oh, yeah, well, you know, in the United States, it's all about the money. And I started thinking about it. And uh, listen, guys, in the United States, we have money issues that hit your own individual personal pocket. But that doesn't mean that the same industry that makes the same pill has a different economic relationship with Finland than it does with the United States. And the example I finally came up with that I think people could understand, if there was one chocolate factory on planet Earth, pretend, okay, one chocolate factory on the whole Earth, and it made one piece of chocolate for every person on the planet. In the United States, you would have wealthy people with rotting sheds of chocolate in their, one of their mansions' backyard that they haven't actually ever seen. And you would have little children who were saying, ooh, I've heard of chocolate. I'd love to try chocolate someday. And in Finland, every person would get their allotment of chocolate every week or year, however often you gave it out. If you run the chocolate factory, you're selling the same amount of chocolate to Finland and to the United States. It's not your problem, how they distribute it. So I I think that's what we're looking at. When you're looking at a global imperial power and industry, if it's selling, it doesn't care how you guys work out paying. You want to chip in all your money and share payment. You want to pay individually. You want to create some crazy insurance system. Do whatever you want. As long as you're buying our products, why would we care? So that's the global level that you know that David Smith got me to think about like it doesn't matter what happens locally in distribution it's a global issue and it's global incentives to keep that economy rolling to keep that money going
1: and it's and in the form of medicine just as you know the bourgeoisie would still be bound by capitalism the doctor would still be bound by medicine or Oh, absolutely.
0: Um, yeah. absolutely. I mean, I think this is something we have seen repeatedly over the years that if doctors disagree with medical management, they're in deep trouble. So, you know, I've, I've been involved in various alternative approaches over the years and looked at how they work. And the doctors who try to be supportive of the alternative And in particular, I'll just speak about the birth issues because that's my, you know, one of my main areas of work over my life. The doctors who said, you're right, the infections are higher in the hospital. The woman is more frightened. The birth is harder. She's 15 minutes away from a hospital. It takes us half an hour to transfer somebody from one room to the other. If I call and they're setting up the OR, you can get her there from the city home as fast as I could get her there from down the hall. So, yeah, it would be safer to just have home births. Let me be your backup. Those doctors got into so much trouble because they were damaging the imperial power, the economic forces. They were in, they were in deep. <laughs> it, it wasn't that an individual doctor can threaten this any more than an individual patient can. You, you can work on finding alternatives. You can try. But this is an enormous, enormous imperial power.
1: And the forces fight back, and it's not other doctors fighting back as much as they're part of a, lar- a much larger social structure, uh, as you as you rightfully corrected me earlier w- was saying that, no, it's not the doctor that has control over the patient, it's medicine that has control over the pac- patient.
0: Yeah, it's this, this enormous biomedical empire that has the control, and occasionally you see particular countries fighting over one issue or another and they have to negotiate a system that will allow them to do whatever is their local thing or not do it or drop it. or But they're negotiating with the same power. You know, this larger industrialization, oh, man, I mean, I, I assume a lot of the people listening to us are academics. Um, you know, if we're talking sociology, we're mostly talking academics. <laughs> so a, a lot of them are academics. And we've seen the growth of the university is a controlling force over the powers that be <laughs> of what used to be the academic power. You know, you know you ever hear that um, I'm blanking on his name, I'll come to it in a second. You know, freedom of the press belongs to the people who own the press. Academic freedom belonged to people who control the university, which used to be the tenured professors. Not so much. You might have noticed <laughs> that there is an enormous growth of management, industrial management, of corporate management, enormous growth of part time workers um, who have no academic freedom. That's ridiculous. That, that what was academic freedom is pretty much lost to that larger corporate power that increasingly is the university. That's actually m- many years back. I I was the president of the easterns and i called the theme of the meeting my day job because that's how we talk you know our researchers are our important thing and the university but the university is controlling more and more of intellectual life and what gets funded what doesn't get funded what kind of research that counts all of that so it is with medicine it's not about individual doctors it's about this larger system, and I think that is just really important to understand.
1: And then the bio, the bio piece of it being, I think, in terms of, I think there's even control in terms of, or bureaucracy in terms of what uh, what medicine gets put out, what medicine gets approved, and doesn't get approved. Of course, and, and, you know. Even, even down to, the, to what, what medicine is available and, and what medicine is not available, and then even to who it's available for. Yeah,
0: yeah. No, totally. I mean, that, that is that I think most people are aware of, that, that, like how research is done and who it's done on. and You know the concept of orphan diseases? There are some diseases that very few people have. If your three-year-old child is dying of one, it, it, it's kind of important. And it would be really good if somebody would do research on that, but the amount of money to be made on researching a disease that kills an occasional three-year-old is nothing compared to male pattern baldness. Goddamn, if I can do the research on what causes male pattern baldness, we are making a ton of money. So what gets researched isn't necessarily about what people care the most about. It's about what's profitable. that concept of orphan diseases are not because they're less horrible, it's because they're less profitable.
1: So has it become, has biomedicine replaced religion at both ends of life, from birth to death?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's something I did talk about a lot in that book. I I talked about the the gates of life, which basically you get to via the hospital parking lot. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We talk about birth. As if it naturally occurs in hospitals, that's relatively recent, um, in the greater scheme of things. But you know, we just assume everybody's going to hospital. And while everybody says so many people say I would never want to die in a hospital, most of them end up dying there anyway. So yeah, pretty much coming and going, it's via the hospital. And I think let me go back a touch before I talk about the current management of this. What, I want to talk about colonization, okay? Because I think that's an important part of what empires do, is colonize. And mostly we talk about colonizing land for obvious reasons. But that's not all that's colonized. It's also knowledge. So just, all right, you know the history of coffee? People watching, there some. there are some crazy goats down there. What? What? is with those crazy goats. And the local people say, oh, they're eating the caffeine bush, whatever they called it, they're eating a coffee bush. And it makes them crazy. And the colonizing people were, oh, that's kind of intriguing. Um, And the people say, yeah, what you can do, and then tell them how to make coffee out of that, how to make a cup of coffee out of a crazy goat on a hillside. That became colonized, okay? So that knowledge moved outside of the control of those people um cotton how you get from that crazy fuzzy plant to my shirt is kind of a challenge (laughs) yes they colonized the land yes they stole the people but they stole the particular people they stole partly because they knew what to do with the cotton so the colonization of knowledge has always been really important and people have been born and died forever. Okay. As long as there's anything you could call a person, we've had to deal with the fact that they arrive via birth and they leave via death and how to manage that, how to deal with that. So death, I guess if you just stand there and do nothing, they'll be just as dead at the end. So I'll put that aside for the moment. It's complicated, but hold on for a minute. But birth, birth requires some skills. Do you know the other mammal or mammals that need um, the equivalent of midwives when they're birthing? You know which mammals have midwives? Probably not. (laughs) Most people don't. Okay. Dolphins and whales. Most mammals can just give birth. But that project of having to get up for air regularly and having to get the newborn up for air and giving birth is just more than your typical, even smart whales can handle. So they have midwives who just keep bopping everybody up now and again. Humans, it's an interesting byproduct of the upright stance, and maybe in another gazillion years, we'll adapt to it. But right now, it's really hard to watch a cat give birth, and it uses its teeth to cut the cord, it uses its tongue to, Yeah, well, (laughs) you can't reach your genitals now, let alone nine months pregnant, OK, with a big pregnant belly, your hands can barely reach it. You certainly can't see it. So the upright stance and added to it that oversized head, you know, human babies are one third head. So that just makes this complicated. So every community that we have ever heard of anywhere in the world has developed some expertise about this. The first time you see that, it's like, oh, Lordy, what, ah, yikes. But then you start learning how to do it. And, and one of the things that happens with knowledge about anything complicated in any society, the anthropologist can tell you, if it's really complicated, you don't need to teach it to every single person. But somebody has to know it. So around birth, and we've seen this happen almost spontaneously when groups are being transported to new places, and there's a group of women, and somebody gives birth. one of the women helps them. Even if she wasn't an experienced midwife, she helps. She helps a couple of times. Somebody else is giving birth. You say, hey, call Susie. She's done this. Maybe she'll help. Somebody has a breach. The baby is coming, not head first, but legs first, bottom first. And I once saw a breach. Come, do it again. So you begin to get the knowledge. So that knowledge centers on a member of the community. It's not the only form of knowledge that does that, but Wherever you go on planet Earth, you find midwives. So they had the skill and the knowledge. And medicine came along and said, those are just women. What do they know? And we'll be science about this. So one of the things they did was put women flat on their back with their legs in the air. Pardon me if this is too gross, but the next time you're having a kind of a rough, bowel movement, a little constipated. Picture yourself flat on your back with your legs in the air and strangers watching you. That'll make it easier, right? The ability to bear down, which every society, people give birth in some kind of a crouchy bearing down position. In squatting societies, it's relatively easy. You are lying on their side, lift one leg and lie on your side. There are positions nobody thought, here's a good idea, let's lie flat on our back with legs in the air. But that was the medical management. You know the image we have of um, the baby's unconscious and the doctor holds it upside down and slaps it into consciousness? Nobody sleeps through their birth, okay? It's, <laughs> being born is kind of, it, it would wake you up, okay? It's enormous change in temperature and light and, like, everything changes. But they drugged those women so much that the babies were unconscious and had to be brought to so what we think we know about birth is so distorted by medical management but they said we are the only ones allowed to do that and they 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 took over and put midwives out of their rightful practice all over the world we've seen this and and declared it as medical knowledge I mean, who knows how Caesar was actually born, and go have your own fight about that. But medicine is now saying, I've read this repeatedly now from medical authorities, that Caesar could not have been born by cesarean section because his mother was alive when he was an adult. Well, hi, guys. It just so happens that wherever you go... Women occasionally knew that if this baby is not coming out and the mother's dying and the baby's dying, the same women who prepared the animals, who sewed your clothing, figured out how to make a cut, get the baby out, and sew it back up again. This was not news to them, but that's denied now. I mean, it's if they just found some group of midwives, I think Ghana who hadn't been approached by medicine and they did an occasional cesarean section. They've not medically trained, but you can do it. It's not that complicated, but it became medicalized and it would, you, you my God, I can't imagine how much trouble you'd be in if you did a cesarean section without a hospital and a doctor. So that colonization of knowledge stole it from the people who had it. And And I think it's just really important to understand what was lost with that. The amount of knowledge, the amount of human interaction-based knowledge. Um, There's a film that's wonderful. Honestly, I saw this film and it changed my life. It's called um, All My Babies. And um, it was done by this filmmaker, Stone, uh, George Stone, Gregory Stone, blanking Stone, who... um, saw these midwives in the South in the 50s and really wanted to film them. He was a filmmaker, but he had no access to it. And then one of the departments of health decided they would train the midwives, so they let him make a training film. And you've got, and it's done with no awareness of the horror of the racism and the sexism and all. all. But you have a midwife who has attended over 1,000 births. She has been there and helped over 1,000 women give birth. And she's sitting and you have a nurse teaching her how to tie a knot so she can tie the cord. <laughs> and she's observing and teaching her how to tie a proper knot. Well, for one thing, the blood that is coming through that cord at the time of birth is pl- is in the placenta. It's not coming from the woman's nose. It's coming from her placenta and it belongs to the baby. If you just wait a couple of minutes, the Placenta stops pulsing. The blood has transferred from—I mean, the cord stops pulsing. The blood has transferred from the placenta to the baby. But in a hospital operating room, who has time for this nonsense? Cut the cord. Take the baby off to some whoever cares for babies here. Send the woman off to postpartum room. We're done. It, it, efficient, efficient, efficient. Because it was a hospital factory system. In somebody's home, there's nobody waiting for the room. <laughs> she can hold the baby for a couple of minutes. The cord will stop. But they lost the knowledge these midwives had and were teaching them how to tie knots. I mean, and then they have a scene in that film where the this midwife is, you know, having this nightmare image because the doctor told her that there was an infection, someone wasn't clean, and so she wakes up and sterilizes her instruments. Postpartum infections, puerperal fever, was an enormous problem in hospitals. <laughs> If, if you're the midwife, you're not running between three different birthing women. You, you, by the time you, you're in her community anyway, you're spending hours in her house, you are not you are not a big infection risk the way a hospital is. And it's so interesting in which people think like the hospital is clean and the home is dirty. Like, hello, <laughs> it's not the way that works. And, you know, the idea of, of clean, cleanliness around medical care came from all of those puerperal fever deaths. And this Dr. Zemovice who said, I think maybe the fact that we're doing autopsies on women who've died of puerperal fever, wiping our hands on our, on our white coats, which make us look very, very professional and important, and then go attending a birth and then go doing another autopsy and then attending another birth. Maybe we're carrying the infection. So, you know, that poor man ended up dying of an infection in an insane asylum because medicine, you know, the first rule is do no harm. So they can't be the source of the harm. They do no harm. But we still know, I mean, it came a big issue with COVID, but There are signs for the doctors to wash your hands all over hospitals. There are repeated attempts to get the doctors to wash their hands. It's just not part of their culture. Whereas these midwives were the same women who basically, in their own homes, changed a dirty diaper, cleaned up somebody's puke, made dinner. Washing is a part of women's culture traditionally. You don't move from one of those to the other. But it wasn't a part of educated white men's culture. They had people to do that stuff. So infection isn't the problem in the home. It's the problem in the hospital. But somehow the dirty midwife became the issue. And so the last midwives in America were these black midwives because the docs really didn't want to go in those black communities. So just let them deal with their own stuff. Eventually they did want those women to teaching purposes and access to everybody and they put them out of business. But every community on planet Earth has had midwives and they're not allowed to practice anymore. Only if they're medically certified. That was a long, my apologies.
1: And and now medicine is disenchanted. I'm really thinking Weber here with the the fact that it's all become about efficiency and predictability, rationalization of medicine. And uh, instead of doctors thinking for themselves, medicine has gone to um a streamlined form of practice
0: yeah and and there isn't much space for individual variation and in a lot of things physical there is individual variation so you have whatever the medical numbers are but there's this Oh, God, I'm sorry. I'm forgetting if there was this wonderful article a long, long time ago about pseudo diseases. So like some kid comes into the office and it looks like a case of dwarfism. But then his mother and his grandmother are standing there and between them. You know, they're so tiny. Oh, OK, maybe this is healthy. Or the kid has some kid with whatever, some kind of odd hair or nose or whatever. And then you say, OK, the whole family has that. It's not a disease. That's what these people are. The notion that everything can be standardized—it it doesn't really work that way. But medicine as this big industrial-sized project. If you look at a hospital or a medical practice, it's a factory. It's not about individual variation. So the idea that every pregnancy takes exactly the same amount of time—really, think about that. We have a woman who, you know, her her. Grandmother gave birth to her mother at 41 weeks. She was born at 41 weeks. She's now pregnant. And at 39 weeks, oh, we better induce. She's late. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) maybe. Or maybe there's a little variation here. Um, And there's no space for any of that variation. Midwives who worked within a community knew stuff about that community and what was normal or not normal within that community. So you even there had a little more individual stuff, whereas when medicine came in, they, they had no clue. I mean, they didn't have that. And so they just came up with a kind of a standardized, and and you're in trouble if you don't follow that. How long does it take to, for the placenta to come out after the birth, or how long? It's all standardized, and it's not about individual difference.
1: And then this is a colonialization then of um, of medicine. And the, I guess the next step that we're going to look at is uh, with that colonialization, has biomedicine replaced religion then at both ends of the life, birth and
0: death? I went off on this. In, in many ways, yes, because I had a – okay. Go to death um on birth yes i mean you don't you don't need a baptismal certificate you need a birth certificate and so for the state they moved from the church you know very long time ago baptismal certificates were how people became people citizens and all of that now it's a birth certificate but i think a more dramatic look at at the other end at the other gate um people will sometimes declare that they want to die at home and their family gathers around them and they try to support them at home and not infrequently at some rough moment, somebody picks up the phone and calls the emergency services and um, you know, she's breathing weird. Oh God, call a doctor. And it's like, no, yeah, she's not breathing. This is the end of breathing, that death rasp. And it just, that's what we're here for is for her to die but the individuals get freaked and they want the doctor there. I was talking about this one decades ago in a class and a student told me this great story. Her mother was a nurse who worked for a hospice service and hadn't actually done hands-on nursing physical care in a decade. She was an admin person. But what she learned was when they got one of those calls that it, you know somebody's trying to call an ambulance, we're not sure what's happening. She said, if she showed up with a stethoscope around her neck, and just sat there, they let Auntie Susie die peacefully at home. That basically, where you used to call a priest, I mean, death is a very big deal. And if you haven't seen a lot of them, it is freaky, as with birth. I mean, birth is more physically complicated. And death, if you accept that the person is dying, so it's not about rescue, it's about dying, then probably most of us could manage it, could provide the care, but you freak out. And so who's the calming authority who knows this is right and I know what to do and it is all fine? Who can give the blessing? It's not the priest, it's the doctor or the nurse, the medical person, that little bit, instead of a cross, come in with a stethoscope and people can calm down and allow the passage to happen. So yes, in that sense, I do think it it does in many ways replace the role of religion.
1: And then, I guess uh, one final question that i that I have is the the biomedical empire. Where do you see gaps in terms of it being studied, in terms of it still being uh, further researched? what What do you think still needs to be done by the scholar to better understand that biomedical empire? Or maybe I, where do you see yourself going with it?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I'm just trying to get people to think of it that way. I think the questions you ask will be different if you're thinking about an imperial power on the planet than if you're thinking about the consequences of medical research or the selling of this or that service or whatever. So I think the I mean, the thing I love about sociology is that larger view. You step back and see the world. Um, what I'm doing in here, I say we're not studying trees, we're studying forests. Trees do not move, forests do you will not learn how forests move by studying trees. You've got to study the system. And so I think if people would think about biomedicine more as an imperial power, as a larger international industry, as taking on governmentality and that religious benediction kind of piece, we might be learning a little more about how it works than this narrower vision that we're expected to have. And I think The loss of power of doctors as individuals in this has been studied. The doctors are really distressed. They used to control their practice and they know perfectly well they don't anymore and they're bothered by it and we're studying it. But step back. I mean, it's not just the administration of this or that hospital. This entire system has become global and individual actors are Subjects of that biomedical empire, whether they're the patient or the provider, they do not control the larger system. And if you ask what the, is controlling the larger system, yeah, you know, we're back to Marx. If it's going to make money, it's going to work. And if it isn't going to make any money, it ain't going to work. And so I think reframing our questions at that level would be helpful. And it's, you know, it's partly why I did this book the way I did. Um, it's one of those Stanford briefs. I love that. It's like 150 pages cost 15 bucks. It's not like go buy a $47 textbook and la la la. I would like, like in an intro med social class, early med social get people to think about this because our students are thinking about, they are thinking more globally than older people are. They're living in a much more global world. They have, in you know, we've looked at this over the last 200 years the telephone, the jet plane, the internet, we're in a global world. And the students, I think, feel that deeper than us older folks do. Um, Like we can understand it intellectually, but they're living it. So I think while you're teaching medical sociology or whatever, if you explain it's part of a global world, it's part of an imperial power, I think they'll understand it better. So yeah, I really, I like that, that format of just I make the argument. It's in plain English because that's the way I write and just trying to explain what we mean by the the imperial power of biomedicine in your life as a mentality force, as you say, as a bit of a religious force and totally as an economic force.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you for being part of the the show today. Uh, I I don't know if you're you're only working on the biomedical empire still, or if there's a, a new project that you have in your back pocket that you've been uh, using to distract you from the biomedical empire. So, are there any new projects?
0: Um. Yeah, my life kind of distracted me from projects. I've been through a rough patch, and so I'm just not yet starting another book. Um, we'll see where that goes. I had a very deep death. Recently, and I'm not back to myself yet.
1: Again, this is uh, new books in sociology, and I'm Michael Johnston. Today, I had um, Dr. Barbara Rothman Katz on the on the show. Uh, thank you again. Okay, yeah. Th- thank you for again for being on the show. Thank you.